0: Hey there, welcome to the program. Thank you for being with us today. I am actually coming in just a tad late because we had a lot of kind of business stuff going on here. And you guys know when I promise I deliver, I've told you. You remember, it was months ago really, I started talking about, I had something to share? And it was blacks for Trump, voices, black voices for Trump. But I wasn't able to tell you until I was actually able to tell you. So working on some pretty cool stuff. And uh, really focused on getting, you know, there's, there's put the first things first and sometimes your life gets in the way and sometimes it's just uh, a, a combination of a whole lot of people not doing what they're supposed to do and then you have to kind of go back and painstakingly go through each step. And so I spent a few hours doing that today and I still have some troubleshooting to do on the equipment here which is why we're back in this studio doing it this way instead of going straight to Lifeset TV. This episode will appear on Lifeset TV. The podcast will be available for listening. And, um, oh, Richard, thank you so much, Richard. <laughs> He's already in the chat room. And thanks to everyone else who is tuned into the show. Thanks so much for being here. Today on the show, we're going to talk Chick-fil-A. You might be looking at the title and thinking, Wow, so a lot of disappointment out there. I know a lot of people are feeling really just betrayed. They're not sure what do we what do we do? how do we how do we handle a business that has been so strong, uh, caving to the liberals? Well, it's a clarion call. It's a clarion call. We don't have the ability to change what Chick-fil-A does other than to pray for them and to kind of try to understand the reasoning behind what they're doing. But the liberals are here for it. I went over to, you guys know I use the Bing search engine. And on the Bing search engine, after you see all the business listings for Chick-fil-A, if you just type Chick-fil-A in the top, What comes up is news about Chick-fil-A from bing.com slash news. Governor Abbott ate at Bill Miller's after the announcement from Chick-fil-A. The Salvation Army is saddened by Chick-fil-A's decision to end donations. And these are Fox Business Links, the second two. Uh, Chick-fil-A infuriates conservative customers by caving to blah, blah, blah interests. And then some conservatives upset as Chick-fil-A stops giving to three groups who are opposed to, and I'm assuming it would say in their uh, same-sex marriage. Now, they go on to then provide some quotes from the president of Chick-fil-A, Drew Anderson, who's GLAD's director of campaigns and rapid response, the president and CEO of Covenant House International. They have quotes from all of these important people on how we're supposed to feel about what they've done. So today on the program, we're going to discuss, first off, we'll talk about Chick-fil-A. I'm going to launch into that in just one minute. Um, We are also going to talk about Michelle Obama saying that white flight destroyed her community. There's a writer writing about this story, the comments that she made, on (laughs) realtor.com. (laughs) yes, the site where you go to look up listings in your area or areas far and wide, Realtor.com has an op-ed up about what Michelle Obama said. Then we're going to talk about the bias from the... Democrats and media, where they're flipping out at the mere suggestion that someone who used to write for National Review, so not a dyed-in-the-wool, true-believer conservative, a person who was conservative enough to write for National Review, it really just is a reflection of your talent if you get to write over there. Not everyone over there is hardcore on the right, and they're certainly not very Trumpy. But they have brilliant writers there. Their writers are gifted and talented, and and they're they're just loquacious. And so uh, it really is an indication of his talent as a writer. They're saying he can't possibly moderate a Democrat debate because he would mess it up. So we'll discuss that. Ben Carson went straight savage. He went back to his roots growing up in a hardcore inner city environment. And he went after Maxine Waters with all of his teeth bared and she was not prepared for it. And then Chick-fil-A announced, obviously, that they've stopped donating. And we're going to talk about that. So let's go there first. And I want to start this off by saying I'm not I'm not at the place where I'm going to stop eating at Chick-fil-A, but I also don't eat there every week. So I am not one of those people, as much as I love what people have so nicknamed Jesus Chicken, as much as I adore it, I don't eat there every week. I don't even eat there every month. In fact, usually if you see us in the line there, it's because my husband or our oldest daughter, the one who loves Starbucks, she also loves Chick-fil-A. She will say, oh, I need Chick-fil-A. <laughs> So we'll go there because she wants it. I'm usually not the one who suggests it, although I do like the food. I I do. Uh, So I'm not going to be boycotting it just yet because I really need to figure out what's going on here. Beyond the story, is it a cave? Is it an, an, an example of someone really taking something that could have been just keep fighting, don't give up? And they've decided they're just sick of all the drama, the, the businesses, the like the San Antonio Airport refusing to allow them to open a store because they prefer traditional marriage. They are a Christian organization. So let's let's get into this. First off, they've been under attack by the left for years for donating to several Christian groups that oppose same-sex marriage. And they're now saying they're not going to donate to those groups any longer. Now, this was issued, the statement yesterday, they've stopped funding two Christian organizations, the Salvation Army. and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Now, the charitable arm is known as the Chick-fil-A Foundation, and they have donated millions of dollars over a period of years to the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Monday, they say that they've no longer funded these organizations and would instead focus on giving their education allotment, so an allotment to education, homelessness, and hunger. Now, I can tell you right now, There is no other organization that is as premier and has been around as long as the Salvation Army. What do you think they're there for? They're there to keep people gainfully employed so they're not homeless, so they have money so that they can put food on the table. I mean, it's stunning that this is what's going on. (sighs) Education, homelessness, and hunger. So they don't... (laughs) So Thomas Reuters Foundation got a quote from a spokeswoman for Chick-fil-A, and here's what she said. We made a multi-year, we made multi-year commitments to both organizations, and we fulfilled those obligations in 2018. So apparently, like most businesses, and especially Christian businesses and organizations, what will happen is your charitable giving will be on almost like a calendar. So the board of that organization will sit down, and everyone will prayerfully consider all of the, avenues for donation that have been presented to them so any prospectuses that they've been sent any presentations any actual uh you know people reaching out and saying we would love to have your dollars to support our organization and here's what we do then what the board will do is after they've prayerfully considered they will say that they are going to target their giving for this organization in this case chick-fil-a and they will say, our giving priorities are, and then they will name off the priorities. And this is usually found in a document. And they'll say, for the next year or five years or 10 years or what have you, our giving priorities are, and then they lay those out in the document. And the they usually are the avenues, just like what's said here, education, homelessness, and hunger. Um, then what they'll say is, we choose, instead of giving 100 bucks to 20 organizations, they will say, we're going to give to three organizations or four or two. And this is a great way to do the same kind of thing with your family. Instead of dispersing five bucks here, 10 bucks there to every, you know, Tom, Dick, and Jenny who ask you for a donation for, you know, cats and pets, because I've had people reach out to me. They want me to donate to animal shelters. I love animals and we have a dog. But our giving is always prioritized into two categories really that we've outlined and we basically don't give outside that. We will on occasion, a rare occasion, give something small to someone who we just, you know, basically you feel like, wow, we have a familial connection to this person and we want to support what they're doing. But the giving that we have thats that we're able to target goes into the two buckets that we have allocated beyond the tithes. So... You know, it is it is what it is. And so people have different methods of doing this. But for businesses, especially multi-million dollar corporations, international corporations, they usually have these kinds of sit-downs, especially when they're Christian organizations. They want to have basically order to the giving. So that's what it sounds like to me has happened here. Now, a family-owned company, Chick-fil-A, They issued a statement saying they would no longer make multi-year commitments and would focus on partnerships annually to allow maximum impact, which could include faith-based and non-faith-based charities. The spokeswoman declined to comment specifically on whether the protests had influenced the decision, but added that this new methodology was created to uh, basically introduce more clarity into their giving. Now, Some people are putting this forward as Chick-fil-A cave to the culture war. And it feels a little bit like that. But, and and let's take into consideration, they have been under sustained attack by the leftists. The leftists aren't going to give up energy just because they've made this decision. In fact, I would dare say that if the leftists see this as a caving to their nasty behavior, it will only embolden them to try to get them to hire Chick-fil-A's where everybody who works there is a same-sex person. Um, try to get them to renounce their stance on traditional marriage. They're not satisfied until you bow down before them and lick their boots. And even then they're going to need to kick you a few times. Remember, these are hardcore dyed in the wool leftists and they're representing the person that they serve. And it's not Jesus Christ. So there will be no satiating their hunger to see Chick-fil-A bleed and die unless Chick-fil-A is willing to say, We are reversing our stance on same-sex marriage and biblical values. We now say that the culture is the culture and have at it and let's fly those rainbow flags. And even then, the leftists will still require pounds of flesh to prove that this isn't some publicity stunt. They're going to want to know it's real. So would it be better if they continue to donate to the Salvation Army and the FCA? In my opinion, changing their giving strategy after they've sustained attacks and wins by not getting into the San Antonio airport, not getting into uh, we're at whatever venue that was in Great Britain where they literally opened up for three days and protesters shut them down and they were driven out of business. Um, any time those two th- things like that happen and then you make a change in your policy, it appears that you're doing so because you want to appease the left. Any appeasement only makes them hungrier for more of your blood. So it's, I think it's a terrible idea for them to make this announcement right now. But it sounds to me like it coincides with the end of a planned giving initiative that was a multi-layer, multi-year sustained effort that is now closing out with this calendar year. So 2019. So in 2020, they begin a new system. And instead of doing five years at a time or 10 years or whatever it was, they're going to now do an annual basis where they ch- pick and choose. And they're saying they want to partner with communities where their stores are located. I understand that too. So think about it. If Chick-fil-A partners with the communities where they're located, let's say on homelessness, in areas where there's homelessness, they partner on that. That's a huge public relations win for them, in addition to them still giving to charities that could, in theory, still be Christian and still have uh, the same kind of impacts. But again... If you alienate your customer base, there's a reason why Chick-fil-A is growing like weed, that that, that it has uh, sustained growth. And that is that the Christian community with all the kids, uh, all the teenagers, the, the community of Americans with all the disposable income and the desire to eat breaded chicken. Remember, liberals are into eating beyond burgers, quinoa, um, they're pescatarians, they're vegetarians. Liberals aren't actually interested in eating chicken from Chick-fil-A. Some of them will eat it occasionally, but for to say that hardcore leftist yoga people are going to spend the majority of their disposable income on fast food at Chick-fil-A just completely does not acknowledge who leftists are. And we're talking about leftists on the coast. They're not Chick-fil-A's primary customer base. So this is an interesting tactic for them to take. Now, um, they're saying it wasn't because of the backlash and I'm sure there is a hope that at least the announcement will garner them a little bit of relief, but it's not going to get them relief. Leftists don't give you kudos for bowing down to them. Like any other despots and tyrants, they're never satisfied. This will not get Chick-fil-A any room within them. And, and if you don't believe me, just look at Walmart. They keep banning the guns. They've been doing it for decades now, removing guns from their shells, removing ammo from their shells, and leftists keep going to their stores and shooting them up, and leftists keep blaming them for, for mass shootings when they happen, even though Walmart is not the primary retailer of firearms in, in America. They are one, but they are not the primary, and they're, they're not the reason why America loves guns or has uh, high gun ownership or anything. Walmart did not write the Second Amendment. I don't know if anybody noticed that, but they're not the ones who came up with it but they still have to take the sustained hits. So I'm going to give you a little bit more information. And by the way, the peppermint chocolate chip milkshake is still out there. If I wasn't trying, trying to <laughs> lose some weight, I would be over there on that chocolate chip peppermint milkshake. Like nobody's business now. Um, uh, here we go. So the Chicago Tribune says it's actually three groups that are not being given to by Chick-fil-A. Um, LGBTQ rights organizations say they have cautious optimism. Yeah, okay. They, they have cautious optimism. All right. I, you know what? This is one of those situations where I've already had a day of a day, and these people, they're going to get on my nerves. I can see that now. So the Chicago Tribune, which is riddled with ads and very difficult to navigate because they have all these pop-ups. So I'm going to go to the reader version. Um, They're talking about how they're ending donations to three groups. They're focusing on hunger, homeless, and education. And let's see. Ah, so in 2017 and 2018, Chick-fil-A Foundation gave $2.4 million to the Missouri-based Fellowship of Christian Athletes for sports camps for underserved youth, $165,000 to the Salvation Army to buy Christmas gifts for needy children, and $6,000 to the Paul Anderson Youth Homes. Now I can tell you, the $2.4 million that's not going to the Missouri-based Fellowship of Christian Athletes, the FCA, that is absolute garbage that they would yank back that kind of money from FCA. FCA gets students who are in athletics to be leaders in their communities by giving them training and Bible study so that they can be leaders. Christian leaders, Christian athletes. You know we're underrepresented everywhere Christians are. And so this is training that these kids need. So by the time they leave high school, they're able to speak to their their peers and their coworkers or whichever direction they're going in, or college or work or apprenticeships or military or whatever. And they're able to articulate why they believe what they believe. You want kids to be able to do that. And why wouldn't Chick-fil-A continue to give to organizations like that? I mean, I'm just really surprised. Anyway... Now, some conservatives have said they stood by the restaurant in 2012 when the CEO, Dan Cathy, said in several interviews that he didn't support gay marriage. In recent interviews, Cathy, who is the son of Chick-fil-A's founder, has reiterated his personal beliefs, but says he treats all customers with respect. And I can tell you that's the truth. Everyone gets, it's a pleasure to serve you at Chick-fil-A. It doesn't matter if you're wearing a rainbow headband or T-shirt, you got rainbows painted on your face. Or if you're walking, holding hands, two men or two women or three men or three women, whatever you got going on. All they want to know is what do you what would you like to eat today and how quickly they can get it to you and then thank you and tell you it was a pleasure to serve you. That's all they're there for. Uh, so I, can, I just anyway, uh, Salvation Army's issued a statement saying they're saddened and uh, that this this move is based on misinformation that when perpetuated puts at risk its ability to serve those in need regardless of sexual orientation, gender identity, religion or other factors. So when you see the Salvation Army red kettles out this Christmas and if you have it with you, you know if you if you have the ability to do $10 instead of 1 or $20 instead of 1, do it because they're down 165,000 and they literally take people off the streets. So Governor Mike Huckabee sent out a tweet saying the sad message of Chick-fil-A is quite clear. They surrendered to anti-Christian hate groups. Tragic. And, you know, there's uh, 2,400 Chick-fil-A restaurants and airports in Buffalo, New York, and San Antonio block them from opening at their sites because of their gay rights record. Which, again, they don't have a gay rights record. They've never refused to serve anyone who's gay. Not only that, but how do you know if someone's gay when they walk up to you and they order a chicken sandwich or if they're in the drive-thru? Do they, because I know I've never pulled up and said, hey, I'm a homosexual or hey, I'm a heterosexual. Can I order a chicken sandwich? <laughs> hey, I'm in here with my husband who's a man. Can I order some chicken? That's never happened. So what What are they talking about their record? So, they also say they want to ensure restaurants are safe for gay employees. Why would a gay person want to work at Chick-fil-A other than to cause disruption and, and you know, whatnot? So anyway, we're pivoting over now to our next subject, and we're not going to have any breaks or commercials. We're going straight through today. See how you like that. Um, so I, what I want to do is just call everybody to remember whenever we see something like this, instead of getting angry, and I, I feel disappointment, but I don't feel anger Let's try a different tactic. Um, let's pray about this. Let's pray and ask God to move in this area with Chick-fil-A. He will do it. And I'm talking about strengthening the leadership there and also just that people wouldn't stop shopping at Chick-fil-A and that the businesses, the, the charities that have had the money snatched away from them, that's the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Salvation Army, and the Paulson Homes would all receive not just replacement donations, but that they would have their donations enlarged by the kindheartedness and philanthropic efforts of other Americans who would step in and fill that gap. That's what we have to pray for. So let's go now to Realtor.com. I was so shocked to see this story there today. This story is part of the reason why I was like, I am doing my show today. I don't care what this world throws at me this afternoon. I'm going to get these things finished and get on this, get on this microphone. So cause I had to talk about Michelle Obama. So former first lady, Michelle Obama actually believes that the white flight she experienced growing up in Chicago South side is continuing to destroy neighborhoods today. She was actually speaking and you guys might remember this uh, comment from last week, speaking at the annual foundation Obama foundation summit in Chicago. And she recalled how white families Uh, abandoned her once diverse middle-class Chicago community and others like it as more black families came to the neighborhood. Now she warned it's still happening today as immigrants move into communities spurring some white residents to pack up and leave. Now when she says immigrants does she mean lawful immigrants or does she mean when illegal immigrants pile up 20 to a house um, because that's not that's not the neighborhood you bought into right? Did you buy into a neighborhood with 20 immigrants to a house? Because if you did, then it wouldn't be a reason for you to move. See, and I, that's, this is what I hate. I hate it when leftists conflate legal, lawful immigration with illegal immigration. Lawful immigrants are usually pretty wonderful to have as neighbor. Um, unlawful immigrants, well, you know, that's a shoot. You don't know what you're going to get. You just kind of have to, like, roll with it when you see them coming. She says, here's the quote from her. There were no gang fights. There were no territorial battles. Yet one by one, they packed their bags and they ran from us. And they left communities in shambles. White flight often results in, end quote there, white flight often results in lower property values, more vacant homes, and the general decline of the neighborhood. Why is that? Uh, why is it that we minorities, when we move into a neighborhood, we can't keep it up in the same fashion that the white people were keeping it up in? I'm talking about picking up trash. Oh, I guess I might have to go there today. See, here's my problem: uh, when my husband and I used to live in the city uh, in St. Louis, here we were young, we had no kiddos, we were, you know, we had a, a multi-unit building, and we lived in one part of it, and we were starting our family. One thing I noticed is that in the neighborhoods that pre- were predominantly white, when I would drive through them in the city, city neighborhoods, there'd be no trash blowing. The neighborhoods weren't necessarily affluent. They looked like they were working class to middle class neighborhoods, but there was no trash blowing in the street. The grass was cut and there were not sheets up to the window. But over by where I lived, the kids would get off the bus and this, any kid can throw trash, but the kids who were getting off this bus in front of our house were literally, all of them were black and they would dump their trash right there on the sidewalk. So I would stand in our window and I would yell at them. And they would look at me and they'd pick up their trash. And some of them would look at me and throw it down, like, what you going to do? So I remember opening the window one time and I said, I'm going to take your picture. And if you throw trash on my sidewalk that I keep clean, I'm going to call the police and have them waiting here for you the next time you get off the bus. And they were like, ooh, she's going to call the police on us. And they stopped throwing the trash. But every new group of kids who would ride that bus, they would immediately start dumping their garbage on the sidewalk. Now, who's training those kids? You're telling me that because you're poor, you can't teach your kids not to throw trash? I know that there are different standards and different socioeconomic strata, but the point that I'm making is she's saying the neighborhoods went down. Vacant homes do decrease property values, but you're saying that you still couldn't pick up trash, that people who live on the street, if I go out here on our street and I see a bunch of trash blowing, I don't just walk by it to the mailbox. I pick the trash up. And I think to myself, who, what teenagers have been over here throwing trash? Because that's, that's who it is. We have teenagers. Some of the other neighbors have uh, teenagers. When the teenage kids come rolling with their heavy bass and all that stuff and they throw some trash on the sidewalk, I pick it up. Why do I do that? Because I live here, for goodness sakes. So this idea that the only way your neighborhood can be nice is if white people live there. Sounds like Michelle Obama really believes that because all of her houses are in white neighborhoods, except the one in Southside Chicago, which I believe they sold that building, but they might still own it. You know, they like owning five houses. So if white people decide they're not interested in living in an all-black neighborhood, that's racist. But if I'm living in an all-white neighborhood and it suddenly becomes an all-Hispanic neighborhood and I move, is that racist? If Hispanics move out of a neighborhood because it's all black or all white, is it racist? The fact is, people want to live around other people like themselves, and I'm not talking about permanent tan status. People want to live in a neighborhood where the first person who sees a piece of trash picks it up, where the grass is mowed on a regular basis, where if something happens, like someone breaks a window, you fix it, even if it can't be fixed with the Perfect double pane low E glass that was busted out of it. You go to Home Depot or Lowe's, you get a piece of glass cut, you fix the window, and then you get the low E glass later if you if, if it takes time for you to afford it. Let's face it, every window, the little ones, just one piece of low E double pane glass is like 250 bucks. It's expensive. So no one's saying you have to be a, a, a millionaire or you have to just only have money for home improvements. But if you're not willing to do the basics, why should anybody, let alone white people, because everybody acts like it's oh, white people are the only standard. I'm a standard over here. If I was living in this neighborhood where we live now, and all of a sudden our neighbors across the street started living like, you know, garbage people, trash blowing all over the place, their, their place just looked like garbage, we would be looking at putting this place up for sale. Because why should we live across the street from anybody who that's how they comport their their property? Yeah, we would go over and probably ask them, "How's everything going? Do you need any help?" You know, because we know them. But we, why? If if it's if it's that black people are used to those kinds of standards, then why did they move to that neighborhood in the first place? Now, some of it back when Michelle Obama was a kid, some of it might have been ignorance, people not wanting to live around people that weren't them like themselves, residual racism, what have you. It could have been some of that as well. I'm not ruling it out, but I am saying that trash. Blowing in the street is not a white people problem. It's actually not a black people problem. It's a, hey, I'm lazier than the laziest thing you've ever seen in your life, and I can't pick up trash problem. That's what it is. I'm dumping trash out of my car into a parking lot. Have you ever seen that? I remember one time the kids were with us. Uh, We were actually in Florida. We are on vacation, and we left out of the mall. And as we were pulling away, we saw a guy literally get in his car, and he was eating a sandwich, and he... Opened his car door and just swept a whole bunch of trash off the floor of his car to include the sandwich wrapper that he was just eating. He swept it off onto the ground, slammed the door shut and pulled away. And the kids were sitting there This was before they had smartphones. Obviously, they were small. And I was like, did you guys see that? And they were like, yeah, he just swept all his trash on the ground. I said, that's low class. That is a person who has not been properly trained by their parents because someone has to pick that trash up. If it doesn't get picked up, it will blow away. I tried to get my husband to go over there so we could pick it up and put it in one of the plastic bags that I kept in the second row seat pockets just in case anybody had an accident. And he wouldn't pull over there and do it because he was like, we are not picking up that man's trash. I was like, "Okay." He said, we're at the mall. There are employees here who will pick it up. And so we pulled away. And I was just fuming because someone had to pick that trash up, whether it stayed there in the parking lot and got picked up or it blew away. Now, am I making too big of a deal over trash? Some people might think so. But for you that think so, just look around your neighborhood. Is it full of trash? Maybe it is, and that's why you don't think this is important. And if it's not full of trash, if you live on a street that's pristine and clean, then you can imagine what you would do if people moved in who blew trash all over the place. It's really that simple. It, you know that a person who will dump their trash out on the ground at a mall parking lot or on your street, you go to their house, they probably got trash on the floor. They probably live like they live in a trash heap. That's how. That's who they are. That's Who they are. So, and back to this article. Samuel Kai, who carried out a study in the Journal of Social Science Research, um, was talking about the communities that experience white flight typically starting out as middle class. His quote is, whites are willing to tolerate a certain level of diversity, but once it crosses a threshold, white flight becomes likelier to occur. He also said once the non-white groups become 20 to 25 percent of the population, that's when it flips. Okay, so if you know that, just, I'm just going to keep going. That's what the Obamas experienced growing up on Chicago's south side. The city is the fourth most segregated segregated metropolitan area in the nation, according to a recent report from the 24-7 Wall Street now, can I tell you something else about Chicago that isn't noted in this op-ed? Chicago is also exclusively run by Democrats. So the segregation is propagated by Democrats. They encourage blacks to stay in their own communities. Stay in the south side of Chicago. Don't even think about moving out of the south side of Chicago because that's where you belong. It's not Republicans telling them that. It's Democrats. Democrats. But if you point it out, they'll say, oh, you're saying things. Yeah, yeah. stop whining at me, Democrat. Stop. Just stop. So she says, you were running from us and you're still running because we're no different than the immigrant families that are moving in, the families that are coming from other places to try to do better. This is nothing but virtue signaling garbage from Michelle Obama. First of all, she's really different from people who move here from El Salvador or Honduras or whatever, isn't she? She owns five homes. Okay. So then this person goes into the study of how immigrants living in a neighborhood, um, there are fewer crimes. Um, Immigrants moving in also is met by a 1% rise in rental prices. Um, So she's talking about what she saw as a child. But she's only she's talking about it in a silo and not using any other information to bolster her 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 tale. And it's okay to share a tale or story or whatever you've got um, that happened to you. But to characterize all white people as running away from minorities and black people is very inaccurate. Um, If you move into a neighborhood and you go and you meet all of your neighbors and you just happen to be permanently tanned as I am. And you go over with a plate of cookies or a basket of muffins or maybe you just go over with your with your hand and you shake their hands and say, hey, we moved into the neighborhood. Um, just want to let you know, you know, I work here. My husband works there. Uh, you know, these are our kids. This is what they look like. If you see them running around, <laughs> they live here too, you know. And uh, we wanted to meet you. You know, we have a dog. Do you guys have a dog? And just start up a conversation. You don't have to go over there and spend the night. You could just go introduce yourself. And uh, I, I find that, all people whether they're white or any other shade of god's creation they really respond well to a firm handshake eye contact and information people love to know about other people so if you go over there and you tell them about yourself and then ask them hey what about y'all where do y'all work around here how, how long have you lived here we just moved in you will find that they are more than happy to tell you all about themselves and to share and most likely They're going to invite you in. They're going to offer you, you know, some water or something to drink. And by the time you leave there, they're going to have formed an opinion of you. And they might not even be the best neighbors you ever had, but they're your neighbors now because you moved in. So why not do that? But if we're going to walk around as permanently tan people with a chip on our shoulder and act like just us showing up means white people are going to run, then maybe white people will run. I actually don't care what people do when me and my husband move into the neighborhood because we, we just make sure they know who we are. I always call because it's, it's surprising if you ask your realtor, do you have their phone numbers? The realtors will usually tell you, yeah, actually I do because when the house went on the market, I called the neighbors to find out everything about the people who were selling the house. <laughs> so when we moved in here, we hadn't talked to the people across the street because they were downright unfriendly, but they sold their house to the people who live there now and they are friendly and we know them pretty well. We met the people down the hill as I called him and talked to him on the phone about the, the neighborhood covenants, the subdivision covenants. And, um, and then we went to a town meeting in our town. And then, I, and then his daughter knows a friend. So the daughter is a grown woman in our age range, and she knows a good friend of mine. They know each other. So when I told my friend where we were going to move to, she said, oh, why does that sound familiar? And a few weeks later, she said, I've figured it out. My friend, her dad lives over there. Have you ever met her? Oh, my gosh, she's a hoot. So then I meet her. One day, she's parked outside of the house we're buying. We pull into the driveway, me and the kids. And she's like, excuse me and my husband, she goes, are you guys buying this place? I was like, yeah. She said, can you get in? I was like, no, we can't get in today because the realtor's not here. She said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I came over here because I couldn't remember something. So we just we were in the vicinity. So we just drove over. So we stood there and talked to her and found, I mean, we just found out everything about her and told her about ourselves. And then later she moved into the neighborhood. She now lives down the hill from us. The point is all these people are white. And if white flight was still a thing, they would have all put for sale signs on their houses and moved away. Instead, they're living here just as happy as clams. And we are one quarter of this neighborhood. So 25%. And there are five of us And there are five of the one lady, her and her husband have three kids. And then the others, they're just two each. So we are actually more than 25% of this neighborhood. Whatever. I, I just don't buy it. I'm not that person. Even in the face of open hostility, it could be racism. It could be anything. All right, I'm pivoting over. I'm so sick of Michelle Obama. Always just downloading on white people. People can't even catch a break with her around. All right, so let's talk about Dr. Ben Carson and how savage he is with his little sweet self. This is a man who always has a smile on his face, and I am always so amused by his demeanor because he just seems like he could give a care. Like, he just has no cares in the world. He's just happy. He has so much goodwill towards everyone that he ever spends any time around. Yet, if you cross him, he pulls out the straight knives and he goes for you. And so that's what he did with this woman. He says... Uh, Maxine Waters, so it's HUD Secretary Ben Carson, and he sent a letter to Maxine Waters in response to a letter that she sent to him. So first of all, let me say to you, um, Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson says, don't come for me unless I send for you. Okay? That's what he said. That's some of that kid slang that I'm just trying to butcher over here. He said, don't come for me, Maxine Waters, unless I send. And he didn't send for her. So you got House Financial Services Chairwoman Maxine Waters who doesn't even live in her own district because it's such a pit. She sent a letter, a blistering letter to him. She had sit, actually sent the letter to Trump, President Trump on October 28th, demanding answers on reports that the administration is mulling moving homeless people off of the streets of California. She wrote, your shamelessness knows No bounds. If you want to read all this stuff, you can find it at uh, listen.staceyontheright.com. So Carson wrote her back. He said, my mother always taught me that people shouldn't throw rocks, especially when they live in a glass house. Because of that wise lesson, I was a little surprised to read your hostile letter to President Trump regarding the record number of homeless Americans in California, particularly in your district. Your shamelessness, knows no bounds sorry that's what she wrote to him Carson wrote back shamelessness is a career politician of 30 years laying blame shamelessness is allowing more than 55,000 Americans to live on the very streets that they represent to me the most compassionate obvious and logical solution would be to get as many homeless Americans off the streets with a roof over their head as soon as humanly possible. He continued on. I have sent multiple letters to your office and requested numerous meetings, but each time you've refused. Basic manners elude you, and it seems that instead of producing results, you're more interested in producing cheap headlines at the president's expense, like a true career politician. Ooh. He also alluded to the dust-up over his comments about transgender people this fall. Carson has maintained that he was merely repeating a concern that big hairy men were trying to enter women's shelters and refused to apologize for the remark when he appeared before Waters Committee last month. He also wrote, shamelessness is allowing anyone other than a biological female into a battered women's shelter. Dr. Carson is brutal, and I am here for it all day long. So I, I just want Dr. Carson to know who, by the way, he was one of our speakers at um, the Blacks for Trump launch, and he was so awesome. But Dr. Carson, this is for you. <laughs> sir, you are you are without compare. You, 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 you acquitted yourself well. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for showing Maxine Waters that she shouldn't come for you. We all appreciate it. All right. So uh, <laughs> just like Dr. Carson, He's he says, don't play. Don't play with him. All right. Last story we're going to cover today on the show. And this one is about bias. So I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, but every single time the Republicans have a big primary or a primary of any kind, the Democrats are the ones that moderate the debates. And so they take turns asking questions to try to play gotcha, to try to embarrass our candidates, anything they can do to make our candidates look bad on television. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'll tell you something right now. The reason Democrats don't want any Republicans moderating their debates is because they don't want hard questions. They want easy questions. But they deserve whatever they're going to get. That's what they deserve. So they're flipping out. Because, and having a total hissy fit because Robert Albritton, the publisher of Politico, wants Tim Alberta, the chief political sport correspondent for Politico magazine, to join journalists from PBS NewsHour at the moderator's desk. The top PBS journalists under consideration are Judy Woodruff, Yamichi Alcindor, and Amna Nawaz. Politico's decision to push for Alberta has rankled officials at the DNC because and also journalists at PBS and even Politico because Alberta previously wrote for National Review, which is a conservative magazine, and he spent the bulk of his recent career chronicling the Republican Party. So dude can't ask questions because he's not a leftist. Okay. So they're having fits. Democratic Party officials say such a journalist is ill-suited to co-moderate a debate meant to better inform Democratic voters about their potential nominees. Now I'm going to tell you something. That is a bald-faced lie from the pit of hell, and whoever wrote it should be ashamed of themselves, okay? There, I said it. NBC News wrote an article about the PBS people throwing fits about the possibility of one of the moderators being not a Democrat. Not a Democrat. They don't even want to answer questions from anyone who is not docile, compliant, and basically with their lips attached to their rear ends. And so I, I'm i going to tell you, um, they should have every debate, whether it's Republican or Democrat, there should be people moderating it who are representative of each of the political parties. The idea that the only people who can moderate anything are Democrats, um, that's not fair. and And it doesn't represent the electorate. It's just disgusting. All right. So uh, programming notes will probably be coming straight to you from LifeZet tomorrow, which means you'll see the show posted on Facebook. And it will not be live streamed directly. Um, but for today, we're here and we're having a good time. And I'm so glad that so many of you were able to join us on the live streams um, to, to basically tune into the show. Thank you so much. I'm going to give a shout out to Lloyd over on uh, YouTube, Doug, Doug Poss, Lynn. Uh, Calvin, Dean, all of you guys, the Firefox eighty one ninety two. Thank you guys for being here today. And over on Facebook, you guys are rocking it. You're awesome. Um, Lisa, Katrina Gross, Chuck, Doug's over there too. Richard Layton, Dorothea Smith. Thank you guys for coming on over. Um, Vivian Ydrusinski, who is my good friend, and Carl. Edis Mitchell III, look at him hanging out in there. Paul Richards, Eddie Martinez, you guys are awesome. Thank you for being with us today. Um, I also want to say thanks to those who have been so encouraging. Um, Over at the the StaceyOnTheRight.com live stream, we have Richard Layton and JBMGRTH all transitioning into the show. Thanks for being here. And I will be back with you tomorrow, probably coming to you live from LifeZet, which means... The whole show will be posted at once yeah so we're still getting used to this new routine we'll see what happens but thank you and have a fantastic evening and don't forget to subscribe over at stacyontheright.com and also don't forget to uh you know sign up at patreon patreon.com slash right or paypal.me slash right. god bless